Um, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart bring you praise. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for your word uh, that you um, have revealed yourself to us. And um, not only do you do the work of revealing yourself, you do the work of applying the gospel to our hearts. And so, Lord, would you do that this morning through the preaching of the word, that we may grow in grace, that we may grow in love for you and one another, and, Lord, that this good news of the gospel would go forth from this place, to the glory of your name and to the good of Santa Fe and even beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in Exodus, and we're coming to this place where the people are um, coming to a, a transition, a tough transition. Uh, a transition that involves going from praising God to being really hard-pressed. And, you know, maybe I'm weird, but every now and then we'll be singing in church right here, and, and, a, and a question enters my mind. Um, and it, it's pretty simple. The question is just this. Really? Um, do, do, I, do I really believe this? Is this really true of me? You know, forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand, really? Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Really, John? And, and you know, I want to say, I understand that a huge part of singing together is to affirm the truths that, that precisely because I do struggle to believe them, we need to sing, that those truths will be hammered more deeply in our hearts. But my point is, is very often a tension shows up between my worship and my wilderness. You know, between the me in this sanctuary and the me down on Cerios, between the words of my mouth, you know, and actually the meditations of my heart. And that's something of the tension we're contending with here. And it's not made easier when you see that you know, that the God who brought his people out of Egypt is the very same God who brings them into this wilderness. The people have come into trouble, and the question is, will they trust? Will the trust that they expressed in worship actually show up in the wilderness? Now, you know, in one sense, that's kind of the central question of the whole book of Exodus. Uh, but it gets sorted out in this very particular way in, in chapter 15 through 17 by way of testing. You may have noticed when I read this, you know, the scripture this morning, there's a theme of testing. And, and I just want to say for starters, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good thing to be tested. It's certainly not a bad thing. Um, it is a good and necessary thing. It's commended throughout the scriptures. You know, I just thought, as I was thinking about this this week, I, I went through a period in my life where I was really terribly afraid of, of flying. You know, flying was really hard for me. I had a bad experience with flying, and I had a real fear of it. And then I met a friend of mine who was um, an aerospace engineer, and he really comforted me when he explained to me, you know, the degree to which airplanes are tested. You know, he explained how rigorously they are tested in every kind of way, you know, before they're ever approved to fly. I mean, I explained to him at one point, I said, you know, the other day I sat over the wing, and I looked at that wing, and that thing was doing this. And that is not a good feeling. And then he explained to me, he goes, no, that's a good thing. You know, you need to understand, you know, there needs to be some flex in the wings. And not only that, but the wings are stress tested to, to, to be able to endure whatever conditions come their way. 
You know, he even explained to me that, you know, in the testing, there was a test where they, they bent the wings and they actually, the tips of them touched and the wings didn't break. And all of that was really a comfort to me to know that that which, you know, um, that, that pressurized aluminum tube I was sitting in was not just good in theory, it was good in practice, right? Knowing, the, knowing that, it really put my mind at ease. And so God's people, you know, are are tested for our own good, right? But, and that's what's going on here is they're led from the Red Sea. They, they're tested, but not only that, there's another side to the testing. The people test God. And, and that is a, a, a different matter altogether. Because testing God, while God tests us, is to push us to the end that, that faith would be produced, that faith would show up, that we would grow in him that we would rely on him more deeply. When we test God, we're putting him on probation. We, we are withholding trust, pending further evidence. You know, it, 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 at, at one and the same time, we are disregarding how he has already proven himself utterly faithful and reliable and gracious and holy and mighty to save, while at the same time that he, you know, demanding that he prove his worth to us. Over and over and over again, because, you know, while he may have just gotten me out of that last mess, you know, I'm in a new mess now, and until you fix that, I will withhold believing in you and trusting you. You know, I'm holding off until my demands are met. And that's why, you know, that dynamic is why putting the Lord to the test in Scripture is regarded as among the most grievous of sins. So even as the Lord is testing his people, while very often, often you know, challenging to us, uh, it's also deeply gracious of him. Because he loves his people too much simply to meet our demands, he is determined to meet our needs, which is a life in which we find our life in him. And, you know, that's not to say it's easy, and that's not to say that the tests, you know, that we run into aren't uh, difficult. But, you know, you can imagine the, the frame of mind of Israel. They, they've just sung this song. They've just sung this verse where, they, where, where he says, you know, that God will bring them in and plant them on your very own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. You know, all that sounds great. And then wilderness. And not just wilderness, but three days of withering heat with no water. And, you know, this is not an experience of, you know, 200 people at Terminal C whose flight just got canceled, right? I mean, this is, this is a whole nation of crying babies, desperate parents, fainting elderly. I'm sure there's some complaining teenagers in there as well, you know, being brought to the very edge, um, the very edge of, of, of survival. I mean, they say a human being can last about maximum three days with no water, and then it's curtains, but then, you know, as the story plays out, apparently in the nick of time, they come to a place where there's water. And it's like, man, amazing. What a relief. Except it's undrinkable. And that's, you know, what this word Mara means. It means bitter. Certainly describing the water, I'd, I would say, as surely describing their experience. This whole thing is bitter. Because they're at their outer limits. And not only that, but the Lord has led them to that place. So the people grumble. And, and, and you know, you can sympathize with that. It's understandable. 
And yet, their grumbling here is equated with testing, testing the Lord. So Moses uh, acts, he does what a wise pastor uh, ought to do here. He, he doesn't actually talk to the people at all, <laughs> at least not right away. He doesn't try to calm them down. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't explain to them well that, in fact, you know, the Lord tests us and brought us here to build our faith that we might learn to trust in him and depend on him, all the stuff I just told you. He didn't say any of that. He just cries out. He has the wisdom of knowing that, in fact, this is not his problem to solve. It's not a theological concept to explain. It is the time to cast his cares upon the Lord trusting that the Lord, in fact, is who he says he is, that he is utterly faithful, that he will give what is needed in this moment. And in fact, he does that. Uh, The Lord tells Moses to throw a log in the water to make it sweet, to make it drinkable. And, you know, this is the first of many places in this text where, you know, we're going to see this little pattern emerge that the Lord not only meets the immediate need, but he gets it meeting the, the deeper internal need, that they would trust and find their satisfaction, you know, not just in a little bit of water, but in him. So he solves the problem, but he also provides them with a picture. Um, Because while the first plague of Egypt was to foul clean water necessary for life in the Nile, here the first provision of the Lord is to purify fouled waters necessary for the life of his own people, right? The Lord is testing his people, and in fact, he goes on to graciously explain the test. This is really the first place where God explains his promises in kind of an if-then fashion. You know, if you do this, then this will happen. And and as we look at this, I just want to kind of remember where we are to, to, to frame this whole thing up, because it's important to remember not only exactly where we are, but how we got here. And it is definitively not because an if-then obligation has been met by God's people. It's just not. You know, it's not that Israel obeyed and then God saved, right? They just sang precisely that. How did did God lead them? By his steadfast love. How did God guide them? By his strength. There's nothing in that song of praise that we obeyed and God saved, okay? So salvation is not a reward for their obedience, but it is, you know, the riches pouring out of his covenant faithfulness and compassion and justice into their lives, God is not, does not reign over, in other words, a meritocracy. He reigns over a mercyocracy. They have received mercy. And so now, with redemption secured by grace, the question is in front of us, in front of them. How do you live? How do you respond to that? You know, and how you live in response to that reality of God's saving grace is, in fact, deeply meaningful for life and thriving. So, you know, while one is never in the position of being able to earn God's grace, we are always in the position of responding to it. That's the stuff we're looking at here. What will the response be? The language here is, in fact, very emphatic. It's very specific. God gives essentially sort of four commands, four sort of sub-commands over the larger command, which is if they listen to his voice, if they do what's right, if they pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, then there will be blessing. Now, I want to be clear, this is the language of law. Um, But I also want to notice, you know, in in the narrative as it plays out, that even before the particulars of the law are given at Sinai in Exodus 19, even before the particulars are given, the principle is given. 
uh, right here by the waters of Mara, that God's people would, would hear his word and heed his word. That's the principle. Um, and the fact, I think, that the principle of the law comes before the particulars makes its own point. Because what that means is that obeying the law is not merely an exercise in regulatory, box-ticking compliance, right? It's not fundamentally about regulations. It is fundamentally about an orientation, um, about directing us in such a way to live in right relationship with the Lord as people responding to grace, not just saved by grace, but whose lives bear out a reality that we're really struck by it, that we never get over it. And that the experience of that is alive among us and that it has changed us and that it is changing us. That's what he's getting at here. So, you know, let's be clear. The Lord's great vision for his people is not to be a rule-keeping people. His great vision for his people is to be a relationship people, a relationship with the Lord. And that's super-duper important because we have an unbelievable, immense capacity, and I will say not only a capacity, a propensity to comply with rules even as we are relationally disconnected, right? To maintain an appearance of godliness, you know, I will confess I'm particularly good at this. I'm a religious professional in an evangelical tradition. To maintain an appearance of godliness while denying its power, we have a propensity toward that. Not just a capacity, we lean that way. And again, you know, the Lord gives more than we expect here. He issues not merely a command, but he actually puts in front of the people a case study explaining what it looks like to not do that. And everyone's already seen it. They already, they've already seen what it looks like to refuse to listen to the Lord or obey his commands or do what's right, because that is what it, exactly what Pharaoh did. That's exactly what Egypt did. They embodied that. And the result was judgment. The result was sickness unto death. And that's why he explains the blessing in terms of avoiding that faith. Don't live like that. Well, then six weeks go by, and, you know, the thirst crisis is averted by God's grace, but now they find themselves in a hunger crisis. Um, and again, and, you know, um, this not only, again, understandably provokes some despair, um, but this time God's people get deranged. Um, they become weirdly, wildly, they become wistful for Egypt. They, they almost get sentimental about it. You know, they, 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 they've seemed to have totally forgotten about their enslavement, their persecution, uh, the systematic campaign to, kill their, campaign to kill their children and wipe them out as a people. They just remember, you know, the good old days of sitting around the pot, the stew pot, and the meat, and the, and the bread, and getting full. You know, like, like Egypt is like, uh, you know, Princess Cruise Buffet. And, and not only that, as they long for Egypt, they also lay into the Lord. Um, verse 3, they don't just say, you know, better to die with a full, st full stomach than starving out here in the wilderness. They say better to die with a full stomach than to die by the hand of the Lord. They... they are in one and the same moment longing for the Egypt that never was and looking at the Lord as he has never been. Not as a savior, but as a potential killer. And, you know, to that, remarkably, the Lord responds to this by telling Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. I will feed. 
I, I will feed God's people, but, but again, in such a way that not only are immediate demands met, but also that internal ones are met. Um, he says they'll give it in such a way that they'll be able to gather enough for each day's need. Um, this, again, is, a, is another test. And, and the test is, is simply this. Can you trust me, not just in theory, but, but daily, in an ongoing way? Um, the grumbling continues, and not only that, it intensifies. And the same God who heard their groaning in Egypt is now hearing their grumbling in the desert. And wildly, his response to that is not to punish, but, but to provide. And, and indeed, he provides food, but, but more. Uh, verse 7 is a remarkable place in the Bible. This is the first place that the phrase, the glory of the Lord, shows up um, as that which God's people will see, as that which they will benefit from and be blessed from, that they would know that, in fact, the, it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. And, and you know, again, you just kind of want to pause there and go, Wait a second, it wasn't even two months ago you were walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, all your enemies were slain, you were brought out of captivity and into God's presence, and you've forgotten who your Savior is. You need reminding. Um, reminder of who has saved you. And, and that reminder comes by way of showing them His glory, not on Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle, although that'll come, but wildly in the daily bread, through the daily bread. He'll send quail in the evening and manna in the morning so that every family would see his glory, not having scarcity, not having surplus, but having enough. And then something really surprising happens. On the sixth day, everyone ends up with not just enough, but twice as much. And they report this to Moses, and Moses explains it to them. He has an answer for them. He tells them about something we haven't heard about really since the creation account. He tells them about Sabbath, about a day of rest. Of course, in the creation account, God created for six days and rested on the seventh and sanctified that day, blessed that seventh day of rest. You know, and what's going on there? Well, we, we tend to think of rest, I think, as as that which is necessary because of our exhaustion. You know, I've worked like a dog, uh, and now I'm getting my rest. You know, sort of make up for it. But, but the rest in view here, the rest that, that, that God enjoyed and entered into on the Sabbath day didn't come because he had worked so hard, was exhausted, and needed to kind of, you know, re, refill the tank. It doesn't come because of exhaustion. It comes because of completion. Um, God's work in creation was complete. He declared it utterly good so that in ceasing in his work, there's an enjoyment in it. That's the Sabbath. So, so up to this point in the Bible, you know, the Sabbath uh, uh, was in the realm of historical theology. It was confined to the events of creation, but here God gives it to his people as a gift to enjoy in creation. Can you imagine? Up to now, the day of rest was thought to be his possession. Now he gives it as a present. And, and again, the Sabbath will come to be inscribed in the law, but it is vital to see where it shows up first in the life of his people. It shows up not as a legal regulation, but as something of a celebration. That's the principle of it. A gift from him to every single one of God's people to enjoy. Certainly a gift they never could have imagined when they were laboring for their life in Egypt. And, you know, I think maybe the best 
explanation of the Sabbath is in verse 30 where it says, so the people rested on the Sabbath day. That's it. So the people rested on the Sabbath day. You know, not once their chores were completed, they rested, or once there was certainty among them that the Lord was sufficiently pleased with their work and their belief, uh, they rested. It just says they rested simple. You know, years ago, I came across this article about um, this little social movement that was sort of gaining some traction at the time. I think it's completely doesn't even exist anymore. But, you know, at the time, there was this little group of people who were dedicated to this thing called loafing, which sounds, you know, sounds like what it is. I mean, the, and the basic idea of it is that, you know, we live in this rat race, we're getting crushed, and, you know, we're exhausted, and it is necessary for us to dedicate a portion of our life to doing nothing. Not planning vacations, which can be its own kind of stress, right? But just doing nothing. And, and I've got to admit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a reasonably driven person. I'm an American. Um, you know, and I'm reading this thing, and I am a, I'm scoffing. You know, I'm just like, this is the dumbest thing. If this thing gets any traction at all, it will be the end of our country until, you know, I came across this one quote that sort of stopped me in, I, in my tracks. And I've thought about it often since, where one of these loafers said this, there is joy in having nothing to do. Joy in having nothing to do. And that, to me, you know, sums up the Sabbath. It is the joy of having nothing to do. Um, that's not to say that there is actually nothing to have been done. Uh, there's a ton to do. Uh, there's too much to do. There's people to feed and water to find and a journey to go on and all that. But the, but the point of it is, is, is and, and the reason I think God gives this gift is to drive into our rat race frantic, I've got to earn my life and sing for my supper hearts that I've done it. And I am doing it. And, you know, I do the work and you get the rest. Not the rest of the work, the rest. The joy of having nothing to do. He's worked. He's provided. He's done everything that we might enjoy rest. So, you know, whether it's Israel in the wilderness or you and me in the workplace, you know, we're just kind of always in that place of itching to do. And that's the place they're in. They're in the place of earning, having to gather up, storing up for themselves, securing enough, you know, for now, but also all the days ahead. And the Lord is gracious to meet them here with daily bread, reminding us that he's the Savior and provides not just daily bread, but actual rest so that we would know for all there is to do, we can enjoy him doing it and rest in him knowing that there's nothing for us to do, to earn our life. And I suspect that's why God commands, gives this sort of funny command that some of this manna be, get, manna be gathered up and, and stored in a jar. Um, uh, not, just, not just that it be, would be preserved, but that we would be reminded that, in fact, it's true. The Lord provides. You know, and, and that we are the kind of people who not only forget that, we get deranged enough to imagine that the thing that's killing us uh, is the thing that would take care of us you know, as they imagined Egypt to be. And, you know, the instructions are to place that jar in the Ark of the Covenant, which again had yet to even be designed or built, even before the tablets of the law are, are given or placed there. But, but, you know, again, this makes its own powerful point that the gift precedes the demand. The grace precedes the law. Provision, you know, before obligation. 
That we live not, you know, as those who are looking to earn God's favor, but we live as those who, you know, have already received it and respond to it. That's how God's testing his people. He wants to push them in that direction, providing for them in their thirst and in their hunger, providing for immediate needs and internal needs, material needs, and also our deepest spiritual needs. And, you know, this whole experience uh, that I've just kind of gone through with you guys uh, radiates, ripples through the whole Bible. And, and it, kind of, it kind of follows on two tracks. You know, it radiates through the Bible as, a, as an unbelievable story of God's faithfulness, and it radiates through the Bible, ripples through it, as an unbelievable story of, God's, of, of, God's, of the people of God's failure. God's faithfulness is celebrated here, and, God, and the failures of God's people are remembered here. So Nehemiah 9, God's people celebrate how the Lord was, gave his good spirit to instruct them and not withhold manna from their mouth and give them water for their thirst and how for 40 years he sustained them, sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. You know, and it, it shows up all over the place in the Psalms. Like in Psalm 105, they remember how they asked and he brought quail and he gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Yeah, memories of God's faithfulness. But, but there's bitter memories as well of, of the failure of God's people. In Deuteronomy 16, the people are told, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa, same place, Mara. In Psalm 78, they're reminded how despite God's grace, still they sinned against him more and more and they rebelled against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. Can, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Psalm 106 looks back to the day they angered God at Meribah. And Psalm 95, which is a psalm of praise, actually, inviting people to come and sing to the Lord and make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. But it includes this plea. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, talking about this story. So it's incumbent upon us that we diligently listen to the voice of the Lord our God, that we do that which is right in his eyes, and that we give ear to his commands and that we keep all his statutes, okay? It's not that easy, is it? <laughs> I wish I, you know, and I don't wish I could send you out here, but if I sent you out of here with that, you would get crushed. You will not make it halfway across the parking lot to your car before you fail. In, in, in the totality of it and in the specifics of it, and me too, all of us. We just know that we can't do it. We, like Israel, I'm afraid, are more prone to grumbling than gratitude. Like Israel, we um, are more concerned with the immediate need, and then we are blind to the needs of our hearts. And like Israel, we easily forget who saved us. Slow to give thanks. We're quick to complain. We readily turn on each other, and most grievously, we turn on the Lord. When pressed, a little or a lot, and I, you know, I'll start speaking about myself, I, you know, I'm, I'm, and maybe you're like this, you know, I'm quick to insist that my wants be satisfied with little consideration that the Lord is committed to giving, us, to giving me what I need for life and godliness. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, 
I kind of live in this place where I look to my happiness and my well-being as perpetually lying on the other side of more. Just, you know, I know what I've got now, but I want more. God knows his people need bread and water, and he's faithful to provide it, but not without addressing, meeting their greatest need, that they would receive not just from the Lord, but that we would receive and rely on the Lord. And what shows up in losing sight of this great salvation that he has already given and the great grace he is sustaining us by right now, how that manifests itself in a community like ours and in a community like Israel is in grumbling. A lot here about grumbling. Uh, Grumbling about the circumstances, grumbling about the leadership, the direction, grumbling about the past, the present, and the future. People complaining to God about Moses, God complaining to to God about the people. And, you know, Israel's tested, but but I want to say, you know, the Lord puts this word before us here today to kind of test us, you know, as a good and gracious thing, and maybe to get us asking the question, is there grumbling among us? You know, is there grumbling about processes and programs and plans and pastors? You know, about the people here in church, about the people out there in the culture that are ruining everything for us. You know, about whatever, about how my favorite song ought to be sung more, about how sermons could be more interesting or more applicable or shorter. You know, about how we, how we ought to be handling the COVID crisis better. Right? And, and, I, and I really want, to, I want you to please hear me. There can and should be productive, constructive conversations about any of those things. There is a place for and a need for loving, constructive engagement to the end that we would be built up as a body and that we would rely on the Lord and grow in grace together. It's not that we don't talk about that stuff, but are we grumbling about it? You know, God have mercy on us when we, come, we, when, when we become so consumed by our felt needs being met that we actually become blind to how God has lavishly already met all the needs. You know, and blind to the possibility that even though I may not be getting what I want, God is faithfully loving me right now and giving me everything I need for life and godliness. He is. And that is vital lest we find ourselves in the treacherous position of, by our grumbling, putting the Lord to the test. Complaining, in essence, as Moses says here, you're not complaining against me, you're complaining against the Lord. Complaining that he has failed, that he has fallen short of our expectations. You know, Jesus, help. This this text really undid me this week, you know, in a good way. Well, the truth is that we've all been tested in that way, and I want to say we have all failed. And the more we imagine that we can kind of hunker down and meet the demands of the law, I just want to say the more certain we are to fail, um, certainly in that task, but also fail to see the glory of the Lord he puts in front of us. As a witness that he provides, that he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. If you, if you and I try to hunker down and fulfill the moral law, it will be a disaster. There's a story of this, uh, of a young man, a young Benjamin Franklin, who actually set out to master the moral law. He wrote up a list of 12 virtues that he um, was determined to conquer. Among them were things like frugality, 
industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, chastity, all good things. But then he reported that a Quaker friend of his, uh, and I'll, I'll quote him here, a Quaker friend of mine kindly informed me, and he'd shown him his list of 12 virtues, that I was generally thought to be proud and that my pride showed itself frequently in conversations and that, not, that I was not content with being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent. And he provided me a few examples of that. So deter I determined to endeavor to cure myself, if I could, of this vice or folly among the rest, so I added humility to my list, giving an extensive meaning to the word. He added the 13th virtue of humility, which um, he appended to it the simple, seemingly doable instructions of imitate Jesus and Socrates. Right? Simple enough. But he discovered pretty quickly as he set out to master moral perfection that lucky virtue 13 was proving to be something of a problem. And, and here's what he says about it. In reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. And it will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it perhaps often in this history that he's writing. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. I want to say what Franklin, you know, zeroes in on in trying to handle his pride is true of any of us trying to handle sin by our own strength. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as you please. It is still alive. But here's the good news where God's people fail the test. He is gracious to fulfill his promise and give grace to the needy. So that while we, are, while we are his failed son, he actually gives us a faithful son. Matthew 4 tells us of a new exodus, a newer and better one. Tells us that Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like Israel... Jesus has just come out of the waters, the waters of his baptism. And like Israel, he's being led by the Lord straight into the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tested. And like Israel, he goes into the desert famished. And of course, the devil lacks originality. So maybe he, he figures, maybe, you know, if God could use food to test Israel so that they would fail, he could use hunger to cause Jesus, the Son of God, to fail as well. So he tests him. He says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But look at how Jesus responds. He doesn't act out of his own sense of immediate need, but he leans into the deeper need. He, he not only listens to the word of God, he is eating and drinking and being fed by the word of God and answers with the word of God, quoting two passages from the Exodus experience saying that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's my food. That's my drink. We haven't diligently listened to the voice of the Lord, done what is right in his eyes, given ear to his commandments, kept all his statues, but here's the good news. Jesus has. 
And the good news is God does not merely burden you and me with orders. He actually gives to us as a gift perfect obedience by giving us his son, Jesus. We didn't obey, but Jesus obeyed. We can't keep the law. Jesus has kept the law. Where, where we fail, he succeeds, and that, succeed, that success is imputed to us so that by faith, we've got success even in our failure, not by fulfilling the moral law, but by running to Jesus. Not by ticking off regulation boxes, but by an orientation of faith, trusting in the Savior. And not only that, but the, you know, the, the then that should have fallen on us. If we fulfill the law, we didn't do that. Then what happens? All the diseases fall on us, we'll get, like they do on Egypt. But here's the thing. The diseases do fall, but they don't fall on us. They fall on Jesus. The disease unto death that comes to us for putting the Lord to the test, for our grumbling, for our turning against God and his people, he took for us by becoming sin for us that we might, what does the Bible say? Become the righteousness of God because of trust in him. We have failed, but God, out of his abundant grace and faithfulness, sent his faithful son to succeed for us and in, that in him we would have life. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word and how it tells the truth about us. Lord, um, we, are a, um, we are a people who need your grace. We need an, a perfect obedience. We need, um, Lord, your atoning death. So, Lord, uh, you know what a disaster it is when we imagine that we can keep the law. You know how it turns into grumbling and testing and, you know, not only of one another but of you. And, Lord, we um, become lost altogether. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this table that reorients us, that shows us that, in fact, though the law you know, crushes us, those demands have been met, you know, by your faithful son, Jesus Christ, and fulfilling the law and taking the diseases that should have fallen on us, that we would know you, as this passage says, as our healer. Thank you. Lord, would you meet us at this table here to drive the truth of that more deeply into the heart, that, you know, as we fail, um, we wouldn't run to the rules, we wouldn't become deranged and imagine that the thing that was killing us is going to take care of us, but that we would run to you and, and that that would be our delight. And Lord, that we could in community spur one another on in that way, that we would be praying for each other, that we would be prompting each other, that we would be, you know, telling each other the good news, reminding each other of the gospel, um, building one another up in that way. So, Lord, help us. We thank you that this story attests to the depth and the greatness of your help. So um, help us to enjoy that now here at this table. In Jesus' name, amen.